0: Thanks for being here. We had a great
1: conversation this morning with Dr. Crow over at ASU, and um, we had a conversation because I have been talking about return on investment, that people have options, and um, they are exercising some of those options when it comes to uh, higher education and getting qualified to do a job, and that many people are finding out, or at least have the feeling that their return on investment is not the same now as it used to be in a college education. So that's where we started with Dr. Crow, was asking him about ASU and students that go there and what their are return on investment
0: is. You know, what we've got is a situation where we have actually calculated the return on investment to our students, and it has a a wide range. If you graduate from ASU, your return on your investment per year over the rest of your life after graduating will be uh, 7% if you get an education degree and greater than 23% if you get an engineering degree for an average between all of our graduates of 14 to 15% per year for the rest of your life. That's a huge return on investment now. Of course, you have to graduate.
1: And that's you know a, a, and a fair assessment because I have said with tuition increasing the way it has, our students getting the return on investment depending on the degree that they're getting, and it does vary. That's one of the things he mentioned is that for an education degree it's seven percent, for others it's higher than that. It averages out to about fourteen percent, and uh, you've got to choose wisely. And that's the reason why we got off on this topic was about student loans and student loan forgiveness. And I want to, I want to jump to that. I asked him about the student student loan uh, message from the White House because if you listen to the White House, spending a half a trillion dollars is necessary because people can't pay their loans and then the way that it was originally set up. It was going to forgive $10,000 of student loan debt for families, for couples that were earning $250,000 or less in that household. That doesn't sound to me like it's people that can't pay their loans. Now, I didn't go into that kind of detail with Dr. Crow, but that's what's happened in this system. So we did talk about the messaging from the White House. If ASU is saying we have a relatively low cost when you factor in after grants, the money that students actually have to pay is relatively low compared to the rest of the country and it's very manageable by the time they get out. They believe they have a system where there is manageable student loan debt when they graduate. Well, that to me conflicts with the message from the White House which makes it sound like student loan debt is such a crisis that we have to intervene. And so he talked about what he said. These are his words about the mess that we have with student loan policies.
0: Yeah, the student loan thing is is a mess. The the policy that's just been put out is is probably not well thought out because it creates chaos about... Who's responsible for money that you borrow and right now we have a poorly designed this is over the last few decades student loan policy you can be given a loan to buy a car to rent your apartment to do anything as opposed to you living at home and going to school and so forth student loans are also applicable for trade schools everything after high school can be student loan supported
1: So, you know, that was uh, I I was encouraged to hear him say the things he said about the system, because I'm not the only one that thinks that this is and he's the expert in education. So we shifted because much like K through 12, and we've talked about it this morning, we're going to talk about it again, that the ESA expansion or what's known as the voucher program will continue that the uh, the people that wanted to get it on the ballot to defeat this uh, lost. They could not get the signatures to get on the ballot. But when it comes to higher education, um, we talked about does it need to change? Because in, in K through 12, you have homeschooling, you have micro schools, charter schools, public schools, private schools, all of these different ways for children to be educated. And it is innovative and it's changing and it's morphing. And I think the public school system is fighting going in a different direction and changing as the demands and as the uh, you know the market changes they really aren't but ASU is known as the most innovative university in the country and it got that designation again and has consistently for years under the guidance of Dr. Crow and so I asked him about that you know he has been so innovative in changing the reputation of ASU and bringing in the engineering school and growing it to the way that it is and you've got their business management school and we all know I know very well Crown because of the great people we have employed at this company that are graduates from Cronkite. So we talked about does education need to change? And this was his
0: reply. What we need is a kid coming out of high school. We need everybody to get through high school. We need uh, people to go to trade school, technical school, culinary school, community college, the military, universities. And, and we need to help people to, as they're learning in their life through innovations, to take all that they learn and produce a, a lifelong learning sort of package so that later, if they want to go back and learn some more, they can get credit for what they've learned. I mean, the system is serious seriously flawed there's insufficient innovation we're not using technology we're overly elitist
1: I just thought that was a very transparent, honest answer about education as a whole. When he says we're too elitist and and I absolutely agree with that and, and serving the needs of people is a pretty amazing thing. I'll give you an example of how things change and how you can find new ways to do things. As most of you know, um, I maintain a very uh, high respect uh, with uh, the, the CTEDs or the Career Technical Education Districts and EVIT is one of those in the East Valley, the East Valley Institute of technology with multiple campuses, Westmeck and the West Valley, and they are educating young high school students, but they also have adult ed programs. And in their high school setting, kids are coming and they are learning a skill. And when they are leaving high school, they are better prepared to go right into the workforce with high paying jobs. And these are for kids that have already said, I'm probably not going to go on to college. I want to go to work. And this gives me the best advantage to go to work. Well, there was a bill that was passed that they championed. And I actually went down and spoke about at, at the legislature. That would expand their ability to offer two-year degrees to the adult ed program, not to high school kids, to people in adult education. So imagine um, as fast as we're building things, as much as construction is going on here, uh, imagine being able to uh, go through an adult ed program, let's say, and or go through the high school program in any kind of construction – And then you're an adult and you're back in the workforce and you realize I really like construction, but I'm not going to be swinging a hammer my whole life. I'd love to learn construction management or whatever else. These CTEDs, specifically EVIT, are now going to, because they have the campus, they have the buildings that are there. They're not erecting new buildings and building a brand new school. They're going to be able to educate people and get them that two-year degree, sometimes with a lot of the instructors or at least the same kind of curriculum and knowledge that they have in an industry, and go on to higher education. And then all of a sudden, now you see someone that is uh, not just uh, someone that's a skilled tradesman or a tradeswoman, they now have a degree in construction management or what are these other two-year degrees. It is one more way that education changes. It's one more way that education is morphing and giving people more opportunities and giving people a chance at a quality education and doing it at a lower cost, at a very affordable rate, and Doctor Crow's numbers, I I, I respect Doctor Crow, and I'm looking at the numbers and I'm listening to what he's saying, and he's telling us, and I I believe him that ASU truly for in-state students is great value and return on investment long-term, which I was happy to hear. That's not the message we're getting from Washington D.C. in student loan forgiveness. So um, it was a great conversation with Doctor Crow. I always appreciate his willingness to come on and be so candid and transparent about what's happening. Uh, it was great. Um, Is inflation worse than we originally thought? We're going to talk about that. But I think what we're also going to talk about first is I want to give you the report on why the ESA expansion isn't going to happen. All that's coming up here in just a couple of moments.
0: values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey,
1: thanks for being here. Big announcement this morning, a statement released from uh, – actually was released yesterday. Katie Hobbs, Secretary of State, sent a letter to Save Our Schools Arizona PAC. Save Our Schools wants the public dollars, uh, the uh, tax dollars to stay in public schools the way they are. Um, and one of the complaints they had with the ESA, ESA expansion – um, the empower, Empowerment Scholarship Accounts, that's what ESA stands for, um, is they said there's no oversight of the money. And, you know, well, the odd part about that, a couple of things about that strike me as odd. First of all, the, will there be parents out there that abuse this? Probably. Just like there are parents that abuse the welfare program and WIC and all that stuff, food assistance. Um, but. The vast majority of parents want what's best for their children, and they're not gonna rob their children's education accounts. And, and, to be very fair, one of the big complaints about K through 12 is that, um, there's no oversight in the districts that when the money is allocated by federal money, state money and your tax money that comes from the you know the property taxes and the stuff that pay for those district schools. When the money gets sent to the districts, they have autonomy and the superintendent and the school boards, they spend that money the way they see fit. There's no oversight, at least not that I know of, that they are bound on percentages and what they can and can't do. So there's not a lot of oversight there either. You go and look at some of the training, uh, and I would suggest everybody do this, even if you agree with it. I would suggest that you request from your school district, wherever you live, to find out what they spend their money on. Are where are they sent? Where are they paying to send their teachers to conferences? What are those conferences entailing? What curriculum are they buying? What are they training their teachers to teach? How much is that costing? And you start looking at some of these programs, and then you should have a say in whether or not you think they are wisely spending your tax dollars. And if you don't think so, you should be able to take your child, go to a charter school, use that money toward a private school. I think this frees up the parents. The problem is that they're right. In one thing, that if you're a failing school, if you are a school that isn't listening to the parents in your district, if you're doxing parents, if you're calling parents domestic terrorists, if you are doing those kinds of things, they are going to take their child and their tax dollars and they're going to go somewhere else. I just hope somebody – somebody explained to me why that's a bad thing. What they say is, well, now it weakens the public schools for the kids that can't leave. And no, no, it doesn't because if you are a good school – if you're a good school, they will come to your school. Why do you think it is so hard to get into a brophy? Yes, it's a very expensive school. When you look at St. Mary's, you look at some of these other schools, Scottsdale Christian, you look at some of these other private schools, they are expensive. But you they're not going to send their kids to a private school if it's not a quality school, the parents that can afford it. And when you say there are some families that can't afford that those schools, well, some of them will be able to now. How is that bad? How is it bad to give a kid from a working class neighborhood that has got such great um, uh, academic abilities, give them an opportunity to go into a setting like one of those schools? What parent wouldn't want to do that? And for me... This is not going to ruin public schools. It is going to force public schools to change. They are going to have to morph. They are going to have to start doing what the parents want and what the expectation is. And now you're going to see a lot more. Hey, look at us. Look at our rating as a school. We've got the statewide average. What is it? 36% of kids statewide. Only 36% of third graders are reading at grade level. Our third graders have over a 70% rate of uh, reading at a third grade level that's when a parent says i want my kid in that school that's where i want to be and so uh, they're going to be forced to change and it needs to you know there are a lot of great educators out there there are some phenomenal teachers I, I i've never dumped on teachers i'm not going after teachers i'm saying the system as it is isn't working. And unless the system changes and frees up those great teachers, you know, there's a reason why we complain about higher education. I'm one of them that does that too. There is a reason why colleges pay people like Elizabeth Warren or de Blasio or what's his name? Didn't Brian Stelter go and teach somewhere? Why these people are making big money to teach at universities? It's because students are spending their their tuition money and they want to be in these packed classrooms with these people teaching them. Now, I don't know that you're going to see the, uh, teachers K-12 through 12 making $200,000 a year but if you're a good teacher that has kids that want to follow you and be in your class, you are valuable and you're going to make more money and if you are a teacher that isn't making the grade, you will be gone We have to acknowledge that not everybody is cut out to be a teacher. Now they've got a great program coming in in education where it's going to be a mentoring program, much like doctors shadow uh, other doctors as they make their way into that career. Once you graduate from medical school, they don't give you the white coat and a stethoscope and just put you to work by yourself. You go through a residency program. When you see a police officer, same thing. You pass the police academy. They're not just giving you a badge and a patrol car and saying, go get them. You go through a, a mentoring program with a a field training officer with an FTO. Teachers are starting a program like that. I think it's going to be valuable in, in public education. But the system has to change. And now with parents having more of the ability, and if you may not even see a dramatic shift in your school and enrollment. But the parents have the ability. So now when a parent goes into a school board and says, I want to know this, can you tell me, can you explain to me this, where you're spending your money, why is this program here, what does it do? If you don't give that parent the answer that they want, they're going to take their child and their money and they're going to go to a school where they're being treated like they want to be treated. That's just called customer service. And the school boards don't like it because the school boards now do not control the dollars the way they used to. And that that's it. Power and money. It's always about that for everyone. And now the power and the money are returning to the parents where it belongs. And let's see. I think we're going to see a difference in public schools. Um, coming up in just a moment. We are going to talk about the newly purchased firearms uh, because there is a story that I found to be really funny. I'll read the headline to you now. Newly purchased firearms may play a role in U.S. murder surge, data suggests. (laughs) The sub-headline you're going to hear in a moment is what made me laugh at this story. We'll talk about it next. One concert I've never seen, but I would pay big money to see would be Rod Stewart. I would love to see him in concert. Um, thanks for being here. Happy Friday from the Mike Broomhead Show. The question is, do you think I'm sexy? That's the question of the day, according to Rod Stewart. Um, we have to talk about this story because sometimes uh, they make me laugh how they answer. or They ask and answer their own question. But this is this is how you have to understand. Murder, murders are up in this country. So, here's the statement at the beginning of this story. Newly purchased firearms may, I, that should be in all capital letters, but it's not, may play a role in U.S. murder surge. Then the sub-headline says, however, <laughs> lack of information limits understanding whether the data suggests heightened enforcement or improved reporting. <laughs> so... All of you out there – I want you to think about this. All of you first-time gun purchasers, all of the people out there that saw that the Fund the Police movement was an absolute disaster and that our streets are less safe than they have been before, not by fault of the police departments but by policies of city management and by prosecutors that refuse to punish people for committing crimes. And then you see the move that was being made and has been – continued to be made by this administration to limit your access to certain firearms or – magazines or ammunition or whatever it is, people have decided now is the time for us to get firearms. So you did. Law-abiding citizens. Does that mean that everybody that is legally entitled to buy a gun and that does buy a gun is going to be a responsible firearms owner? No, it doesn't. But what this leads you to believe is that since all these people are buying guns, Crime has gone up. Murder has gone up. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's because murder has gone up. More people are buying guns. Maybe that's why maybe when you see a story like paramedics and firefighters in New York City are getting killed in the street on calls, which happened yesterday, when you hear about a story out of New York City about a guy that had been arrested nine times and was a registered sex offender is now being accused of raping an 81 year old woman. When you hear these stories, you think to yourself, it's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to let that happen to me. But somehow it's always the gun. Yesterday there was a story. I believe Smith & Wesson is being sued by families of victims of a mass shooting. How do you sue the manufacturer of any product for the misuse of its product? It's, it's, this, it's this trying to circumvent the Second Amendment any way they can. They can't do a frontal assault on the Second Amendment because it's written in stone and anybody – it's pretty clearly written that you have the ability, you have the right to keep and bear arms. That's it, period, end of story. And when it's been challenged, when laws and local laws are too oppressive and gun ownership, they've been beaten in the Supreme Court, not by this radical right court that everybody sees, but by courts. Washington, D.C., and I don't remember exactly what their law was that was federally, but the Supreme Court told them they couldn't do it. What happened was I think their law was if you had a gun in your car and you were going to a gun range or transporting a firearm, it had to be dismantled and in a locked box and your ammunition had to be in a separately locked box in the trunk of your car. That's not a gun. That's not a gun. That's a stick. That's a rock. You're throwing a rock at somebody. And so people have been – the anti-gun crowd who – and I mean this respectfully because a lot of what I'm saying here is sarcastic, but I mean this respectfully. A lot of the anti-gun crowd – Um, and information is born of ignorance, not stupidity. They are not stupid people. They're ignorant about firearms. They hate them so much they know nothing about them. They don't know how to purchase a firearm. They've never been around a firearm. They can't understand why anybody would want a firearm. They're just bad, evil things, and no one should have them. But it's a misunderstanding, and it's a poorly educated opinion. You should at least talk to someone... That owns a firearm and find out why you maybe should go through the process and see what the background check looks like in order to purchase a firearm. At least I don't know. I don't think it would change your opinion on firearms, but you would have a much more educated opinion on why they're bad in your opinion because they're not to me. Again, I'm a hothead. I, I've got no problem with confrontation. I'm not proud of that fact, but I am. I'm 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 down for a debate. I'm down for an argument. I don't. You know, it's that's just how I am. I'm not. I'm not going to physically get into an altercation. I'm way too old for that. But I've got no problem with a confrontation, online or in person. None. Never have brandished a firearm at a human being. Never. And I'll I'll tell you from my perspective and the perspective of almost every firearms owner I know, the idea after firing a firearm, going to a range and shooting a gun, the idea of pointing that at a person and pulling the trigger makes your blood run cold. At least it does mine. It would have to be a last resort for me. It would have to be a last resort for me. But we live in a world where bad people have guns and they do bad things with them. And unless you have good people with guns to stop them – and we've had people there have been – people have been quoted in saying there is no such thing as a good guy with a gun. Or it's a false narrative that good guys with guns save people. That's just – that's wrong. It's just wrong-headed. But to write stories saying that we are seeing an increase in murder because of an increase in gun sales, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's we see the uptick in violent crime and the lack of willingness to enforce those laws, either through shortages in policing or unwillingness in prosecutions. People feel like they may have to take the law into their own hands. They're not going to allow themselves, the people they love or innocent people to be victimized. And so when I hear these things, when I see these stories, it makes me laugh because you can turn data into whatever you want it to be. And a, a false narrative of saying that you're the problem because you went out and bought a gun is absurd. In my, I, at least I believe it's absurd. And uh, you know, people have to be responsible. I, I will not defend people that do the wrong thing. I mean, that's silly to do that. Um, but it is strange. I just think it's very, very strange. Coming up in a moment, uh, border towns. We're going to talk about border towns because uh, there's a couple of stories about how dangerous it is at our southern border and what's being done and what should be done to stop it. The last one is about bodies, that they don't have so many bodies in one southern Texas town. They have to order refrigeration trucks because they can't store them all. It is a sad, sad thing. We'll get to that coming up in a moment. It's a good news Friday. Actually, a good mood Friday. I don't know how good the news is, but we're having fun at least. Thanks for being here. Happy Friday from the Mike Broomhead Show. Um, If you have not subscribed to the Mike Broomhead Show podcast, you ought to do it. very simple to do on any device that you have, and it's brought to you this week by King LASIK and K2 Vision RLE, the best vision for the Valley. Schedule your virtual consult at KingK2Vision.com. So let's talk about the border. This is an ongoing uh, issue for me. I I got into a bit of an argument with somebody on social media because they're upset that I said we should be sending the message south of the border. Do not come here. It's dangerous. And they took issue with me saying that. You shouldn't come here illegally. You're being lied to by the cartels. They are being lied to by the cartels. How easy it's going to be and everything else. And the policies of this administration are too welcoming in the sense that people are staying extended periods of time and it's making it worth the risk. I don't want to see people die. I don't want to see people injured. And they are both are happening at the border. I've, and I, fact check me. I mean I want people to fact check me. I know I don't expect people to take my opinions – as fact, I don't expect you to believe anything I say, but when I give you something that sounds outrageous, check me out on it. Women crossing the border illegally, they're being brought here by the coyotes, by the cartels, um, are bringing with them the morning after pill. Sometimes they're bringing over multiple pills because they are told that the expectation is they will be sexually assaulted on the journey. Now, I know it doesn't happen to 100 percent of the women, but the expectation is that it will. So I want you to think about that. What this is really like when you make this border crossing, when you make this journey here, when you're being brought by the coyotes, how horrible the treatment must be if women are so afraid of being uh, raped that they are packing the morning after pill with them so that if they are raped, they don't get impregnated by their rapist. We are a part of that. We are a part of allowing this to happen. We know that that is statistically true, that that is happening. We know that young girls are being forced into the sex trade. We know that young men are being forced into gangs and drugs. We know that 70% of the fentanyl that's coming into this country is coming through the southern border of Arizona. We know these things are happening. And we're not doing anything to stop it. This is the Maverick County Sheriff um, down in southern Texas. And this is what he is saying about deceased migrants in his town, in his county.
2: These are the priests here where we have all these bodies right now. I took over about uh, two months ago. I'm responsible for this now. The funeral director, um, I guess he got, I don't know what happened. He said, i no longer going to be responsible for them. So now I'm responsible. So he's, the only thing he does, you know, if you see somebody, either in the river, or the brush, whatever, a body, he'll he'll transport him, put him here, but we take over.
1: All right, one more. This is more part, more of what he said, uh, talking about not not all these people make it across
2: the Rio Grande. We might need another one, but I hope not, you know, because it, it now becomes a problem. Not only immigrants crossing, but also immigrants not, not making it. You know, they drown, some die in the brush, whatever. The summer was very hot. You know, we had the the, 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 the drought, and now we're almost on the, on the fall, you know. So, but still we hit, we find immigrants. So, that's that's the set, set part, you know, that not everybody makes it. and um, Including and, children that we see. Including children, females that are pregnant, you know. And um, I'm hoping that we don't have to get another trader like this. With a with a freezer.
1: Now, there are some people that are saying the answer to this problem is to open the border, that we should be welcoming people and just allow people to come in. That's not how we run our immigration system, nor should we. We know we live in a world where, yes, there are a lot of people that want to come here to live the American dream. But there are also those that want to come here to commit crimes and do us harm. And having an orderly system of immigration does not make you a bad country. Having an orderly system for immigration makes you a better country. That we should always open our doors and open our arms to people that want to come and be Americans. But we have to have an orderly system. We have to have a system in place that we know who's coming. We are pretty sure of what their intentions are. And that is the way you have a well-running immigration system. It's funny. The person I had the argument with this morning said basically – because I said we are the shining city on the hill. And he said we aren't. And he was angry that he said, most of my show is opinion, not fact. And I said, all of my show is opinion. I get paid to give my opinion. But then he backs it up with, we're not the shining city on the hill. We're not welcoming. And I thought, well, that's your opinion, not mine. Not mine. In my opinion, we are a very welcoming country, and we always should be. That We should welcome people that want to come here and join us in this great experiment. We should always welcome people to this country, and I believe we always will, but we have to figure out a way to stop the human trafficking and the plight of people crossing. There are people dying in the Rio Grande uh, because they're drowning. There are other people that are dying in the desert because they're overwhelmed with heat. There are people that have been murdered. There are women that have been raped. Drugs are crossing our border. People are being enslaved. This is another one. Fact check me, please. People are coming across the border. They're being told. They're being put. Remember the drop house stories we used to see in the 90s and the 2000s? Well, people are being brought here, and then they're told, you owe us much more money than you did before. They're taking people's papers to stay here legally. They're basically enslaving them and telling them, try to escape. If you escape, you might escape. But if you do escape, we are going to kill your family in whatever country you came from. Our people in your country are going to murder everyone you know. We're going to murder your parents, your siblings, your aunts, your uncles, everybody. So they're slaves until the cartels say they have worked off their debt. And a lot of these kids, young people, are being forced into the sex trade as women, the gang trade and the drugs as young men. And uh, it is horrifying what's happening. And until we continue to shine that light on it, and I believe that light is beginning to shine because we are now seeing cities like New York and Chicago trying to figure out what to do with the migrants in their city, that maybe something will get done. But this has been completely ignored by this administration. They have told us over and over again, just recently in the last few weeks, the vice president has said that the border is secure in as much as it's a priority. I don't have any idea what the rest of that sentence means, but that's what she said. And we all know that it's not true. And uh, I just – the reason why I keep bringing attention to it is because I want it to stop. I want us as Americans to be so fed up with the plight of humanity on the border from both sides of the border that something's finally done about it. Coming up just after 11 o'clock, Dr. Crow joined us. Michael Crow joined us from ASU, and we talked about the validity, about the um, uh, return on investment of a college education at Arizona State University. I thought it was a very, very compelling interview, and there are some of it you didn't get to hear. So I'm going to let you hear part of that when we come back and hear why he believes ASU is a great place to go to school next.